Genesis 3. As we look at Genesis 3, as we get out of the gate this morning, I want to ask you a question. Do you love your job? Did I just open a can? Do you love your job? Let me ask it another way. Do you, do you like to work? Do you love to work? Some of us like to work. We're driven. Some of us like Netflix. And <laughs> HGTV. I like HGTV. I like the Boise Boys on HGTV. That's my confession this morning. They're great. Especially when I started hearing their stories. That's a long story. But anyway, they, they have some cool stories. But anyway, um, but do you love your job? Do you, do you love to work? Some people would answer with a bold, yes, I love my job. I can't wait to get up tomorrow morning because Monday's coming. Um, but for some of us, it's an emphatic no, no. Or maybe sometimes, depending on what part of the week it is, what time the, the month it is at my work, maybe it's because certain things are due at certain times of the month or things like that. And some of us, though, just don't like to work. But for all of us, probably at some point in our life, we've tasted that deep enjoyment, satisfaction of a job well done. We've probably experienced that before. Maybe it was a project we did. Maybe it was in school. And we're like, man, I nailed that. I got that A+. Um, or maybe it was that project at work. Or maybe you were supposed to deliver some kind of uh, a speech or presentation. And, man, you knocked it out of the park. And you just had that taste of, of satisfaction and enjoyment that you did well. And so why does work have that inherent value of where it makes us feel good when we do something very well, we work, or we got a job done well. It's because we're made for it. You and I were designed to work. And so we've seen that over the last few weeks. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have this picture of the ideal, right? This is what God created. He placed Adam in the garden as his co-worker, his co-laborer in creation. He put him to work, as we've seen the last two weeks, to cultivate the Garden of Eden, to till it and to work hard in the garden. And so this is before the fall. And so what we see is that God created work as something that's good, something that is holy. And so God gave Adam this position we saw last week of dominion, right? He was to uh, give oversight and to serve creation. All that God created, he had dominion over. Um, God gave him also a pattern of work and rest. He was to work hard six days and to rest on the Sabbath, to worship God and to, to stop from his regular line of business and, and work. And then God took from the man and made a woman. We saw that. Eve, who was Adam's helper or partner to work alongside him in the garden. And then we see that this marriage relationship, this family union together, worked and serve, I believe, is a model of how we're to work in partnership. And, and if you think about our jobs and our workplaces, right, there are times we work by ourselves, but, but most jobs, most companies and places of business, businesses thrive on partnership. They, they thrive on teamwork, right? If you don't have teamwork, if you don't have partnership, you don't have automobiles. You don't have computers. I mean, we can go on and on and on. And so we see the model of that here in Genesis 1 and 2. And so here we have the ideal, right? We've had the ideal up until now. And now in Genesis 3, everything changes with the fall of man, including work including work. 
And so today we're going to see that. I want us to see four things. I want us to see original sin, okay, and how it really was a failure, failure to work. And we'll see how and what that means. And then second, I want us to see what the result of this sin was. It was curses that fell upon creation uh, that all has fallen on us as well. We bear the effects of it. Um, and then third, our, our response uh, to um, the curse upon work. Um, and then fourth, the remedy, right? The remedy. And so first, though, I want us to see sin, okay? Everything was perfect. Everything was ideal until now. Um, but then look at verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And so God made all of creation, all the animals, right? And he said they were good. And so here is the serpent. Now, we get some help with the rest of Scripture uh, of knowing what's going on here a little bit. You have this serpent that God has created, but we also see that this serpent is influenced, right, by Satan, all right, by the enemy. We get some help with that in places like Romans chapter 12, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, uh, chapter 20, verse 2 as well. And also Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 3, where we see that this serpent is identified as Satan. And so what that means is that the rebellion of Satan, remember Satan was created as an, an angel and he decides that, listen, I, I don't want to worship and submit to God. Instead, I want to be like God. I want to be God. And so now Satan becomes this fallen angel, and he has a cohort of others who joined him in his despise against God who are called demons. And so that has already happened. And so the serpent comes to the woman. She's, he is, the serpent is influenced by Satan. And where would he find this woman? Where do we find Eve? She is alone at this point. She is without the protection and the counsel of her husband in this episode here. And then look what happens at the end of verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, Indeed has God said, and listen to what he says, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And so what does the serpent do? Remember, he's crafty, right? Satan is very much a deceiver. He's a liar. And how he does it is very much crafty. He leads Eve first into what I would call kind of a theological discussion, right? A, a discussion uh, but he distorts it by emphasizing God's, what, prohibition. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. He says here, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Right? I mean, he, so he leads them into this, her into this question. Um, but he emphasizes what God forbids. Instead of talking about what God provided. Right? What did God provide? Fruit on all the trees of the garden. He just said, though, just that this one tree you may not eat of. That was his command and the law he gave in the garden. 
And Eve responds, if you look at verse 2, and says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, okay? But from the fruit of this one tree in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat it or touch it. Is that true? He didn't say you couldn't touch it. You, you can swing on this tree. You can climb on this tree. There's no prohibition against that. But he says you cannot eat of it or you will die. You will die. Okay? What is this death? It's a strong word. In fact, back in Genesis 2.17, when God gave this command to Adam, and he says, if you eat of it, you will surely die. This means spiritual alienation from God, spiritual separation from God. Physically, you will die, and you will pass out of my presence eternally is the idea. This was really cool. In our 9 o'clock hour, uh, one of our students was in there who serves at this hour, our children and in preschool and elementary and I love what she said. I, I just opened it up and said, hey, what do you think this means? What do you think this death means? And I love what she said. She said, um, she says, what dies in the garden right here is the hope of being with God forever. That hope dies. That's right. That hope dies. So it's physical death, eternal death. It's separation from God forever if they break this command. Now, some of us might be sitting here, or you've maybe thought this before, or maybe you've heard someone else say this and say, well, this just seems kind of petty. This just seems kind of like a, a little thing that, hey, why can't they just eat of this fruit? They can eat the fruit of the other trees, but why not just this? Well, well so here's what we see, is that any sin against God, right, is the most evil of all evils, any sin. No matter how small or big you think it is, any sin against God is the most evil of all evils. And so we see that here. And that it's serious with God. Any sin separates us from God. And so look at verse four through six, listen to what happens. The serpent said to the woman, you surely won't die, right? Surely, surely you won't die. Surely this won't hurt you, okay? And then he says, for God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he so what do we see right here? Satan, the serpent, goes from theology, right, to this direct challenge, saying, surely you will not die. What does he challenge Eve with? He challenges Eve with these thoughts, that the word of God is not true, that sin does not have that bad of consequences. There is no judgment. You've maybe heard this before. There's no hell, right? That's embedded in this as well. And there are no absolutes, okay? So what the enemy does here is his track record and what he continues to roll with even today. He wants us to think this way. Surely you will not die. And then in verse 5, this is an audacious appeal to Eve's pride because he says here you can be like God you see Satan wanted to be like God that's right his rap sheet that's why he's in what he's in 
That's why he's one day going to be placed in the lake of fire forever. It's because he wanted to be like God, and he rebelled. And so now he seeks to get Eve to do the same thing and not to submit to God, her creator. And so the serpent says, you can't trust God. He's not that gracious. And rebellion is not a bad thing. That's what he wants her to think. You will never truly live unless you skirt past God, is what he wants Eve to think. You will never find out what is out there unless you just give it a shot and a try. Does it sound familiar? I mean, that's what Satan tries to do with all of us. It goes like this. Yeah, I'm going to, to live like I want to now, and maybe later in life I'll follow God or trust him, maybe in that final minute. But right now I'm going to have my fun. I mean, that's what Satan wants us to think like and do. It means the worst thing that can ever happen to a person is what Satan is saying here is instead to submit to God. Because sin has wonderful benefits. That's what he wants us to believe in these moments. And he'll paint it and dress it up as cute and as beautiful to get us to take a bite. So Satan has challenged here God's word, his judgment, his love. And he has challenged here whether we should trust God, whether we should obey him. So Eve begins to contemplate, right? the possibility of evil. She rationalizes things. She thinks if I did it, I would have a level of experience that I would never know as long as I am obedient. So maybe I should do this. She has imagined, she's rationalized and made an evil thing good and a good thing, which is submission to God, evil in this case. Then she willingly does it, right? In verse six, it tells us here, when the woman saw it, tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and she falls into sin. She eats of it. And then Adam comes right behind her, right? And falls into sin with her. And so what do we have here? The serpent's plans, the enemy's plans here succeed as Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden tree. They break the limits that God has set for them in this vain attempt to become like God in some way beyond what they already were as image bearers. And so already knowing from experience the goodness of God's creation, what do they do here? They choose to become wise in the ways of evil. Their decision to eat the fruit are choices that favor their own desires over God's word and his desires. And so good is no longer rooted in what God says, hence his life for us, but in what people think now is desirable to elevate life. And so what happens here? They turn what is good into evil in this moment. So some thoughts on this. Adam, his sin here, involves a failure in his work. His sin here involves a failure in him serving creation as God had designed him and wired him to do. You see, he was called to do what? Exercise dominion over the other creatures. He instead does what? He permitted himself and Eve to be ruled instead by this crafty serpent. Instead of declaring the word of God to the creatures, Adam was what? He was tempted to deny God's word by a creature. 
See, think about this. He was to give dominion, right, over the serpent, all the animals. Remember, he's naming them, right? He has dominion over them. Not only that, but, but he also, over Eve, has dominion over her in the sense of serving her and leading her and caring for her and providing for her, and all that is good. But yet, he fails in this, and he jumps right into sin. Instead of exercising what he was created to do and designed to do, he fails in his work. And so look at verse 7 and 8. Look what happens here. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They knew something was wrong. That's what that means. They knew that the relationship was broken. What's realized here? Brokenness. Their conscience, right? Guilt, shame in this moment. They knew what they had before. Remember, remember Genesis 2.23, what they had before? Remember this great poetic language of, of Adam about Eve and this great relationship that they shared together. They were naked and they weren't ashamed and, and this union they had. They knew now there's this separation. There's this brokenness. It's gone. First together, now instead, what happens in verse 7, they're driven apart under the cover of fig leaves. And so first goes their relationship, right? The brokenness between the two. And next goes is their relationship with God. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So instead of walking and talking with God in the evening breeze, what do they do here? They hide themselves from his presence. And then look what happens in verse 9 through 12. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God knows where he is, but he asked him that question. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to? God knew that, but he asked him that. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Right? Don't you love that? She made me do it. Yeah, we'll get, yeah, yeah. So Adam then further breaks the relationship between himself and Eve by, by blaming for her for his decision and at the same time takes a dig at God, right? You gave me this woman. And then look at verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate, right? Adam says, the woman made me do it. Eve says, the devil made me do it, right? So what does Eve do right here? She breaks the relationship with the creatures of the earth by blaming the serpent for her own decision, right? So Adam fails in his assigned task. And just as a wrong standing with God corrupts every facet of human existence, so Adam's fall led to the perversion of both work and rest from here on out. So what do we see here? Brokenness, separation, alienation between God 
and between people. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. And the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. And that's what we see here, right? What kind of death? Physical death? Separation from God? Eternal death. Separation from God forever. And that sin affects human relationships as well. Brokenness. That's why you see what you see today. And so look what happens next. Now comes God, and he's going to bring judgment upon this sin. He's going to bring punishment. He's going to bring consequences. These, these are curses that he is now going to put upon specific parts of his creation because of this sin that has now entered into it. And so look what happens. Adam and Eve's decision had disastrous effects. In fact, that affect our workplaces today, our modern workplaces. And so God speaks judgment against their sin, and listen to what he says. The first thing he says is, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and you, uh, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So he's talking to the serpent. Let's think about this just for a second. Can we have some fun? Have you ever thought about this before, that the serpent, instead of crawling on its belly, because that's now the curse, maybe stood up? And was walking like this or something like that. Maybe he had feet. Maybe he was beautiful and maybe he was, I mean, that just plays with my mind a little bit. I, <laughs> yeah, like, is that Geico? Geico commercials? The Gecko? Good job. I bet Cy thought of that. Good job, Cy. That's exactly right. So from now on, when you see the Geico commercial and the Gecko, I want you to think of Genesis 3. Right? If only, if only. It wouldn't be just a commercial, it'd be reality. Right? Um, and then look what happens in verse 15. Now, verse 15 is interesting. Verse 15 is very interesting because it, it's, a, it's a curse in one sense, but it's also great victory in another. I love verse 15. We don't have time to spend a lot of time, but we'll just spend enough. He says, I will put enmity or hate or strife. Between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now, time out for a second. Who is he talking to? He's, he's talking to directly, actually, to Satan, right? And so think about that again. I would put hate and strife between you and the woman, right? And between your seed, enemy, and the seed of the woman, right? Ultimately, the seed of the woman eventually means Christ, right? But there is going to be strife, right? Between the enemy, demons, and humanity. But listen to what this is going to say. Look at verse 15, the middle part. He shall bruise you, so eventually the seed of the woman. So amazing to think about that, that God in bringing Christ in the incarnation, seed of the woman through Mary, okay? Here's what he's going to do. This is amazing. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The bruising on the heel is the cross, okay? So what's amazing about this, we have what's called proto-evangelion, right? The first gospel right here. In the middle where hope is died, God says, wait a second, it hasn't. Because guess what? I still have dominion 
I still love creation of what I've created. God hasn't thrown in the towel here, right? And so he will bruise you on the head. In fact, Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan on his head. And that's what we have right here. So in this curse, right, that's pronounced, it's also prophetic, and it's going to be victory for those under sin and under the curse that falls on Adam and all of us. There is going to be victory if we cling to God's son and we believe in him. The third curse that we see right here, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. You ladies are sitting there thinking, thank you for that so much. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Some of you might read that and think your desire will be for your husband, that you're going to have like this great desire for your husband in the sense of like, I can't wait for him to get home, can't wait for her to see him. That's not what that means, all right? In fact, it's, it's kind of the opposite actually. The same word desire right here is in chapter 4, verse 7, where we have Cain and Abel here, and it says, God says to Cain, look at verse 7, sorry, I I got distracted. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. So think about sin's desire for us. What does sin want to do to us? He'll still destroy, okay? But you must master it. So the same word desire here used in 4.7 is the same used for now, the woman toward her husband. So what does this mean? It means that she's going to want to grab the reins now, right? Instead of being this, this helper and this co-partner and this, this great team moving together, now this, we've got this going on both ways. Men dominate, men rule, Women try to take the reins. Men, men, uh, women try to dominate. I mean, you, you just have this going on, and we know the rest of the story, right? So you see that. That's going to happen now. Then you have, in verse 17, to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Listen to what he says here, and this is where we're going to camp out. Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. That word toil is in pain or is in sorrow. So you're going to have painful toiling, painful work. You will eat of it all the days of your life. Both both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face or brow, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust. Wow. Wow. So what does work become here? What does work become? It becomes toil. A result of the curse, work became what? More difficult, unpleasant, and liable to failure. Work becomes frustrating. Work becomes futile. And after a life sentence of hard labor, what does God tell him? Adam, you're going to die, and you're going to be buried in your workplace, the dust, because of sin. And then back to verse 19, instead of living forever with God, you're going to return to the dust. Right? So what do we see here? First of all, men and women must still be fruitful, must still multiply, must still govern, but now 
here's what happened. You paint the fence, guess what happens now? It will rust. That's how practical it gets. You mow the lawn, guess what? Weeds are going to take over, right? Even rest or leisure. You go out and play golf, and you're going to get frustrated, and you're going to think at the end, well, no, not the end, probably by like whole nine, you're going to start thinking, why did I come out here, and why did I pay this, right? I mean, just practical stuff. This, this is how this begins to take hold. But now a second layer of work must also be accomplished as well. Now you need the work of healing. Now you need the work of repairing. You need the work of restoring the things that go wrong, the evils that are committed. And so, yes, you still need farmers. You still need midwives, scientists, parents, leaders, and those creative enterprises like do an animation that Gabe spoke of. But now you also need exterminators, right? Because they're no longer your friends, the bugs and the creatures. All right. You need doctors. You need funeral directors. Have you ever thought about that? You need correction officers because of this. Everyone in professions that restrain evil, that repair damage, you need plumbers, right? You need plumbers, okay? Those who restore health, you need those. Roughly speaking, there is twice as much work to do now than there was in the, gar- in the garden. Work is not less important to God's plan, but more. Now everyone's work is a mixture of create, uh, creating and repairing, encouraging, frustration, success, failure, joy, and sorrow. And so this is the reality of work outside of the garden, as that is where Adam and Eve are sent, right? Look at verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, talking about this. And they took from the tree of life, they ate, and um, now they want to live forever, right? It says there, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was Taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the garden, he stationed the cherubim, the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. They are out. And now that's where work happens. You see, you and I were made for work, but in this life, that work is stained by all that was broken here in the garden. The fall created separation, alienation between people and God among people and between people and the earth that was supposed to support them. There's now alienation, there's separation. We will see all kinds of effects of this in the workplace. We see it every day. We see it with, with now supp- uh, uh, suspicion that replaces trust and love. We see it with alienation, which will lead to jealousy, rage, and even murder in the workplace. We're going to see that in Genesis 4. All workplaces reflect the separation between workers to a greater or lesser extent, making our work even more toilsome, even less productive. And so what's responsible for that? Sin. Sin. And so God created work as holy and good, but sin has made it painful, sorrowful, frustrating, and futile. And so how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Sometimes it, it looks like this. I think there's 
two attitudes that we see today specifically that we all probably at times struggle with and we probably fight against, right? But how do we see sin affecting us in our work? What's that attitude? And I think there's two, and they go in opposite directions. The first attitude wants to avoid working at all cost, right? That's the first attitude. Work is painful. It, it's, it's toilsome. It's hard. It's, it's frustrating. I have to work with other people. I have to work with other people, right? I have to work with other people. And we just say that over and over again. And so, so we want to avoid work. And so we, there's this attitude of little ambition, little passion for serving others, little passion for making things that are good, uh, for doing things that are helpful in our work. Instead, what life begins to take on is, is life is more geared to, I want to be entertained. Life is more about funding leisure. And so what happens here is laziness replaces hard work. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, Adam's not some loafer or some slacker, right? This guy is going to cultivate and till. God's going to provide and continue to make things grow. And I mean, it's this beautiful thing, but, and he's working. He's working. But now in Genesis 3, this painful, sorrowful work where now there's weeds, thorns, and thistles, and I'm going to work till I die. Man, just, it eats away at us. And so does the temptation to be lazy. Think about this, Proverbs 10.4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, meaning who's a slacker. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12.27. A lazy man, slothful man. You think about a sloth, okay? That type of person does not roast his prey, meaning he ain't going to eat, okay? But the precious possession of a man is diligent. Right? Diligent work produces good. You're going to eat. Too many today feel entitled, right, to things, but don't want to put in hard work to get it. They just want it and expect it. I do think for some, investing in work Working hard frightens them. I think some people are scared. Here's why I think. I, I think some are frightened because they expect to fail or they're shameful. You might be saying, well, why? Well, think about this. We live in a very competitive workplace environment, wherever you're at, right? I mean, most places are high competitive. Everybody's looking to get that promotion. Everybody's looking to do this well. I mean, there's these expectations. You got to reach this standard. You got to reach this expectation. I mean, so there's all these things. But, but what if you're not as good as the person next to you? I mean, what if you're just not at what you do? I mean, you can work and you can do good, but you're just not as good as the person next to you at that job. I mean, you're good at other things, but this one specific job that you're doing, you're not quite as good. I mean, you're given your all. And so what creeps in is if it's a sense of, 
I'm going to fail, or I'm not going to do quite as good as this guy or this gal next to me. And so shame, and so what, what happens is we just maybe don't give as much as we can. So sometimes that's reality, it's tough. But I think the message of this is one and two is that we should work hard. We should work diligent for God's glory the best that we can. Best that we can. Even though somebody over here may do it better than us. Celebrate that. And that's hard. That's hard. But we shouldn't give in to laziness because work is, is hard. And it does mean that, hey, we're going to sweat. We're going to have to put in some hours. Sometimes it may mean we have to put in a little bit extra hours and things like that. And so work takes that. And I think that we miss today is sometimes that, that work is not celebrated, that hard work is not celebrated today. And we've got to remember, hey, listen, God created work. He designed it. And so the problem with this first attitude is caring little for work. And we've, we've got to turn the tide on that, turn the tide on that. And so, so, I mean, talking to parents, I mean, we've got to turn the tide on that and encourage our kids to work. To work. It begins, begins young. Uh, another response to God's curse is, is goes in the opposite direction. It runs completely in the opposite direction of this first attitude. And work becomes an idol to worship. The fact that work is hard and that there are those who fail makes it even more attractive for the competent or more competent and the more driven. And so there are those who live for their work. As they lust for pride, they're self-centered, they're greedy, they gauge their value through one achievement after another. They say things like this, rest is for wimps. It's not biblical, but, but they think that way. They have no desire for this balanced life because, hey, work, 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 and I'll, I'll pay just for the rest because I'm making more money. So balanced life is not in their wheelhouse. This attitude usually is not work in the sense of helping people or accomplishing things that glorify God, but instead demolishing the competition. It's that attitude or feeling the thrill of the next accomplishment. And so where this attitude, the first attitude involved caring little for work, this attitude instead cares only for work. In both cases, what do we see? We see how sin has corrupted something good that God has designed us to do. So we see the effect. We see the responses here to the curse. We, we struggle with, with those attitudes. So, so what does God want? And we talked about this the first week, and I want to just go back to this text. I didn't put it up on the screen, but I'll just read it for you. Colossians chapter 3. Remember what Paul said? Remember, Paul is speaking to the context of slaves when he says this. Slaves working for their masters. So it's not the greatest working environment, okay? And he says to them, whatever you do, do your work heartedly from the soul, from the heart. Work hard. As for who? The Lord. Rather than for men. So not out of selfishness, not out of greed, not out of self-centeredness, 
Not because other people are watching and I'm going to start doing a good job. No, because the Lord is watching and he created you to work. And it's holy and it is good. And then in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And so whatever job, whatever work God has given you to do now, work hard at it. Don't make it an idol, right? Work unto the Lord. Now as we close, I want us to think about this because Genesis 3 lives us in a position of wondering, well, what's next? (laughs) Adam and Eve are out of the Garden of Eden. We're going to see Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, the effects of this. I mean, if you think about it with Cain and Abel, you've got a lot of things going on there. Relationship strife, um, you see. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's a workplace-type environment. And so you see a murder there. I mean, so we, those things are just going to advance, right? On and on and on and on. So the question is, what is the remedy to all this? What's the hope that we can have when we go to the workplace? with the effects of sin all around us. And so God places the curses as a poison, right? He places the curses as a poison to make life in sin barren, empty, and painful. There's a purpose behind these curses. He wants us to know that life outside of him, separated from him, is empty, barren, painful, frustrating, futile. Here's here's what's good, though. There's an antidote. There's an answer. And so listen to what happens in Genesis 3. Look at verse 21. I already told you about verse 15, what God's going to do with his son, Jesus Christ, right? Who's going to come through the seed of the woman, Mary, that he is going to crush the head of the enemy, right? Jesus is going to do that through the cross, He's going to die for us. He's going to raise again on the third day. He's going to overcome sin and death. But listen to what happens here in Genesis 3.21. There is a word from God here that is going to illustrate something bigger that's coming. So I just want you to listen to this, and then I'll tell you how, and then, and then we'll go in, into a time of communion. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothe them. You might be thinking, what, what does that illustrate? What kind of hope does that illustrate? God made garments of skin. How's he going to make garments of skin? He's going to have to kill some animals, right? And he made them for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Sacrifice these animals to clothe them. Right, this is going to speak and illustrate and be illustrated and be communicated and expanded upon. And here is how it's going to be expanded upon. You go to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's what Paul says. That God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect, who was God in the flesh. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. 
Jesus on the cross is going to bear the sin of the world in his body. He's going to die and be sacrificed like a sacrificial lamb. Why? He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If we would believe and trust in Jesus Christ, God's going to clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus. And so right here in the garden, we see communicated the beginnings of of God's grace that he is going to provide for us. He's going to graciously clothe us, not just with animal skins, but with the righteousness of Christ. And that is the only antidote. That is the only remedy. That is the only answer, is the saving work. Jesus Christ, who would bear the curse of our sin by dying on the cross, clothing us in his own righteousness when we come to him by faith. That's the hope we all need, personally. That's the hope our families need, our workplaces need, is that. So today, have you been clothed by God with the righteousness of his son? Have you? The Bible says we must trust in Jesus who died for us, who bore and paid the price that we all deserve. He paid it for us. So have you believed in him today? If you haven't, know that this is what God has done for you, and he simply wants you to receive that as a gift today. And he wants you to follow him and trust in him and live for him. As someone who is now a new creation, And so today, believe, believe. For the rest of us, as we go back to work, as we go back to school, as we, some of us finish this week, some of us next week. How do we go back to work tomorrow? How do we go back to school tomorrow to do the work back in our homes or wherever God has called us to to be? I think from this text today, we see that we are called to work with God at the center of our lives, working for his glory, working to serve others, giving all that we have heartedly as we work unto the Lord. And even in our times of rest, that we would enjoy God and give him praise. And so may may we work and may we rest that way as we fix our eyes on Christ. Let me pray.